Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 75 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today I'm interviewing Pauline Cox. And I came across Pauline by listening to another podcast where she was doing a series around health. And I thought she has amazing knowledge. And I would love her to come and share that some of that knowledge with you. And while she, when I was listening to her on this podcast, she reminded me of a couple of things that I had, I knew about, but I had forgotten. So one of them is that holding your breath, you have to let go of the air, not because of lack of oxygen, but because of our tolerance to too much carbon dioxide. And she said you can extend the time that you're holding your breath uh, by practicing. So I was doing that and I had forgotten until now that I haven't been doing it recently. So I've got that back on my things to do list. And so I started off at 25 seconds and very quickly built up to 45 seconds. And I even once hit 55 seconds. So I've just done it now uh, to remind myself and I managed 50 seconds. So you can, you too can build up. The other thing she mentioned was that we naturally need to breathe through our nose. We are nose, nose breathers. And one of the reasons behind that is because we have all the filters in our nose with the nasal hairs that keep out some of the things that shouldn't be in our body. So that catches some of it. And when we breathe in, we're just take, through our mouth, we're just taking it straight into our body. So breathing through your nose is very important. And I had forgotten that. So a couple of where I've been using it. And I said to Pauline, I've been thinking about you every day where I've been using it is um, exercising. So when I'm running, remembering to breathe through my nose and and other exercises as well. And also getting into a cold bath. Now, it's very tempting to go <laughs> and breathe through your mouth, but I've been making a real concerted effort to breathe through my nose. So I'm sure you will agree that Pauline knows her stuff and will enjoy this episode immensely. There are She shares lots of nuggets of information um, with us, so I'm sure you will enjoy it. So let me tell you a little bit about Pauline. With a vast depth of knowledge and experience in the world of health and nutrition, Pauline Cox has a passion for educating and empowering people, disseminating complex science into the everyday world, impacting the knowledge of the nation and influencing change in the way we see nutrition. 
Pauline is an author, speaker, and co-founder of a ketogenic and low-carb high street and online store called Sew and Arrow. She also runs an online health membership focusing on female health and hormone balancing. Let's go and listen to the interview with Pauline. Welcome, Pauline, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you, Jackie. It's fabulous to be with you. And we always start by asking, where in the world are you? I am in today a very sunny UK, right in the southwest in a place called Clevedon, which is absolutely beautiful. And we are blessed with a bit of sunshine, which is just perfect today. Yeah, we've got, I just looked out, very grey here, very cloudy. So enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) It was nice out this morning when I went out, but it's sort of clouded over now. So let's start by finding out how you got started on your low carb, healthy keto way of eating. Take us back as far as you need to go. Yeah, well, I'd say we'd be looking 12 years ago now. And it came out of necessity because I was really struggling with my health. I was, at the time, I believed I was eating really healthily. I was working as a physiotherapist. So I was, I was a health professional thinking I was being healthy. I was vegetarian. I was gluten-free, but I was very heavy on the grains, pastas, the dates, the power balls, anything I could disguise up as as healthy sugar, um, I was eating and convincing myself that I was just really, you know, eating the, the healthiest diet for my body as I could, but I was absolutely exhausted. I was anemic, chronically anemic. Um, I had gut issues. I had resistant weight. I was, uh, I had palpitations. I had polycystic ovarian syndrome. I mean, the list was going on and on. And I got to the point where I thought something, something has to change. Can I just ask, how long had you been a vegetarian? I, at that point, about three, uh, sorry, I was actually a pescatarian. So I would have okay. some fish now and again, but I hadn't been eating red meat for about four years up, up to that point. Yeah. Now I was eating lots of spinach to try and compensate this anemic situation I was experiencing, but I was then on liquid iron. I was on um, slow release beta blockers. I was on a, a cocktail of things to try and manage these symptoms. And I got to the point where I recognized that perhaps this is not the ideal diet that I'm following here. And I came across the work of Dr. Terry Wall, who was, as a physiotherapist, I had an interest in um, conditions such as musculus um, MS. So I, I came across her work and recognized that she was using food as a source of medicine and really looking at the biochemistry, the cellular physiology, understanding the mitochondria within the cells and it just drew me into this whole world that I hadn't really delved into. My focus up to that point had been human science and physiotherapy. And so I kind of crossed over into this field of, of really understanding the science of nutrition. Mm. And from there, it sparked this entire new love for food as medicine. And from there, I went on to study for my master's in nutrition and public health. So how did you start incorporating that into your, into your life? I started really by adopting meat. <laughs> so I stopped <laughs> being a pescatarian and started eating meat again. I ditched all the grains, so all the rye breads and all the gluten-free spelt breads and everything I'd been eating. So I, I let go of all of those and instead started, I was following Dave Asprey then. So I started doing bulletproof coffees and um, really looking at grain-free 
eating and high quality protein. I started really taking more of an interest in gut health because I really began to recognize that the anemia was being driven by my poor gut health and my inability to absorb this iron as opposed to not necessarily getting enough iron in with all yeah. the liquid iron and the spinach smoothies and things I was taking in adequate amounts of iron, but I wasn't getting the availability, the bioavailability of that iron wasn't necessarily there because it was spinach. But secondly, my stomach acidity would have been compromised from being on the pill for many years, which will have depleted my zinc. My zinc levels were also low from all the sugar I was consuming, packaged up as healthy through dates and Powerballs and whatnot. So I started really looking at what I was eating and how that was impacting how I was feeling and all these secondary symptoms of poor gut health and poor liver function. Yeah. So how did um what were the things that you started to notice first that started to change in terms of your health i would say energy you know my energy was terrible and you know for for someone that age it should have been pretty good but it was i was tired when i woke up i was i i used to be really lightheaded i'd feel dizzy when i woke in the morning if i didn't eat straight away I'd feel tired in the morning. By the mid-afternoon, I was tired. The evening, I was tired. It felt like I was constantly pushing myself through the day and using food as a form of stimulation to get through the day. So I think the first thing that I started to notice was a real change in energy and this kind of brain fog lifting. I felt like life was being switched on into full color again as my it felt like my brain was waking up and my mood was changing my patience started to improve and after that the the other things that have been persisting for a while like hormonal issues um i could see my skin was improving my body composition was changing so these these things started to happen gradually but i'd say that energy and mood were some of the first things that i noticed improved yeah and hunger now i know there's loads of different rabbit holes we could go down today and there's loads of different topics that you've got huge amounts of knowledge on but perhaps we should I know you've got a book coming out uh next year on women and hormones and things perhaps we could yes. delve and you said you know hormonal issues was the thing that was bothering you perhaps yes. we could dip into that a little bit and talk about sure. hormones and how food affects the hormones Well, I think firstly, it's important to recognize that hormones affect women at all ages. You know, we get young girls, teenage girls being put on the pill because of very heavy periods. Then as women get into their sort of 20s or early 30s, they start to note fertility issues because of, again, hormonal imbalances that haven't necessarily been looked at from a a sort of a symptomatic perspective as being a problem, but more, oh, I've just always suffered from heavy periods or irregular periods. And then as we enter the perimenopause, again, it's very accepted that we have certain symptoms. And then we seem to have this, this entire stage by stage process of the female life that we have, we normalize symptoms of hormonal imbalances. And so I think as we start to understand the importance of keeping our estrogen and progesterone in balance and allowing them to work in this really beautiful synchronized way, then it allows us to recognize when things aren't normal and what's driving that issue and how we can start to alter our lifestyle and our diet in order to support the glands producing the hormones and then get those hormones back into balance again. Mm. So what would you say are some of the common things that people might notice? So let's say they don't know at the moment that they've got a hormonal imbalance. Yes. What would be something that they might notice that's 
they that should set off alarm bells and think sure. I need to do okay. something about this? That's a great question because it, you know, we, as I said, we kind of accept things, particularly in our, our young years, we accept very heavy bleeding or, or we accept PMS, lots of emotional um, ups and downs during our, our cycle. I think first of all, for the listeners, it's important for us to recognize that men and women, men and women are very different. Mm-hmm. Men have a 28 day cycle with their hormones. Men have a 24 hour cycle. So we are really different when it comes to different stages of the month and working with those stages, recognizing that we're going to have different energy levels during different times of the month. We're going to have different dietary requirements, possibly want more food, want less food, want to go out for a hard run, maybe want to do yoga. There are different stages of the month where becoming a bit more intuitive around what we want to eat and what we want to do. As we get a little bit more intuitive and in tune with our hormones, we can start to recognize that. But when our hormones are out of balance, for example, estrogen dominance is very very common. So estrogen dominance, this is where the estrogen becomes much significantly higher than it should be. So estrogen and progesterone are hormones that work together in this really beautiful symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. Estrogen is a little bit like grass growing. It's a growth hormone. It drives growth. So when estrogen is growing like the grass, progesterone is like the lawnmower that comes along and keeps it in check. So it's always coming along and keeping the grass growing, but keeping it at a certain level. Now, if progesterone levels become low and and estrogen is driven by other factors, then the grass gets out of control and this balance is shifted. And a few things can really knock that balance. But when estrogen becomes dominant, that's when you get um, a heavier bleed, you get PMS, you get really erratic mood swings. Um... You can become anemic because you're losing a lot of blood and it it can really drive a lot of the problems that younger women tend to have um, right through to perimenopause with their hormonal imbalances. It can cause weight issues, skin issues. There's a whole host of symptoms that women would just recognize as just having their period and the the things that come alongside having um, challenging periods. So having that balance, keeping progesterone and estrogen in check together is really the first part of creating this great journey with our our hormones from a young age. And I'm, I'm talking from young girls when they first get their periods, helping them to understand how diet and lifestyle can impact those two very sensitive hormones. Yeah. What sort of things would would somebody who thinks they've got estrogen dominance need to go to the doctor? Or is it something that they could just start making some lifestyle changes themselves? Yep. There's a great deal we can do lifestyle-wise So and diet. So it's really important to recognize which which systems of the body are involved with our hormones. Now, for example, the liver. The liver plays an incredibly important role in buffering excess estrogen. So when we have too much estrogen within the body, the liver comes along and it helps to remove the excess estrogen via the bile that it's excreted and it's taken out via the bowels to be deposited. Mm -hmm. So this is a a fantastic system that we have within our body to help to help keep the estrogen levels in check and not allow them to, to go too high. 
So if the liver becomes dysfunctional or fatty and sluggish, then our estrogen levels can start to creep up because we're not having the same ability of the liver to bring down excess estrogen. It's not producing the bile necessary or enough bile to help remove the excess estrogen. The bowels become sluggish so we can get constipation, again, either through lack of bile because bile is very important for healthy bowel movements. Sometimes we're not eating enough fiber. Sometimes our gut balance is out we have dysbiosis. So these things can all lead to constipation. And when we have the bowel movement sat in the bowels too long, that excess estrogen can be reabsorbed into the body. Yeah. So we have this sort of double situation that the liver's not functioning at its best. So it's not, it's not actually buffering the estrogen. Bile production can be low again because the, the liver's not functioning well. And then we get this reabsorption by the bowels. Now, the gut also plays a key role in estrogen balance. So we have something called the estrobolone. And this is a very specific collection of gut microbes that helps to modulate our estrogen levels. It can help bring them up or bring them down. So if the gut bacteria is out of balance, this again can drive estrogen imbalances in some cases where we want it a little higher in women who have very low estrogen. It can be too low because the gut bacteria, the estrobolone is not present. Or on the other side, it can be that the, um, the estrobolone is not there when it needs to help lower estrogen. So the gut and the liver are incredibly important for helping with the, the buffering of estrogen, the modulating of the levels. And then progesterone, which also plays a really important role in balancing out the estrogen. If progesterone becomes very low, then as, as a byproduct, estrogen becomes high. So if it's, even though it's not high in terms of the levels, as progesterone lowers, it becomes high as a ratio, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, absolutely. So progesterone levels can become very low when we're very stressed because the precursor to progesterone is pregnenolone. And pregnenolone also makes cortisol. So when we're stressed, the body gives up pregnenolone for progesterone and instead gives it to cortisol. So stress lowers the progesterone, which again can lead to estrogen dominance. So it's really important that we start to look at the the bigger picture of what we're eating to feed our gut microbiome, what we're eating to ensure we're getting fiber to help with our bowel movements and the excretion of estrogen, what we're eating to prevent fatty liver and liver dysfunction to help with our circulating hormones, and then the lifestyle um, factors that really influence like stress on our progesterone levels and magnesium deficiency, which comes from eating high sugar diet and the impact that has on building progesterone and GABA for sleep. So there's such a big interconnected it's weed. Huge, isn't all, it? Yeah. It, it, sometimes when you step back and you look at where the web ends, you're like, wow. So it, it comes right back to eating and sleeping and movement and mental stress. And it, it often does come back to those key lifestyle factors, sleep, stress, eating well, not eating continuously, ensuring our blood sugars are stable, our metabolic hormones are stable, that our body composition is in a certain level. I mean, insulin, again, Jackie, plays a very important role with our sex hormones and it can affect fertility. It can affect estrogen levels and testosterone levels. So 
it, as I said, it's quite a complex picture, but bringing it back to the very basics of keeping things in balance, keeping estrogen and progesterone in balance and focusing on certain systems in the body like the liver and the gut and what we're doing, how we're eating and what we're eating to support those systems. Yeah. And one of the things you didn't mention was fat, eating fat, because you need that to create the bile and move the bile because I've had personally over the years problems with um, gallstone attacks. Yes. And I suspect it was probably because the bile wasn't moving probably. And and what I was doing was actually probably making it worse because when I was getting these attacks when they were happening regularly was I cut out all fat. Yes. Basically lived on green beans and ham for months because anything I ate would just cause an attack. But it's only as I've learned more that I realize that actually you need the fat to keep the bile moving. You absolutely do. And you need the fat to stimulate bile. You also need fat to absorb your fat-soluble nutrients, vitamin A, D, E, K2. You need um, fat to build your hormones. The precursor, the building block of hormones is fat. So, you know, having these beautiful, healthy fats in our diet supports every cell in your body, the phospholipid membranes, the um, immune system, the building of our hormones. We need these fats for life, but it's being specific about which fats we want and then keeping some fats, the inflammatory fats we don't want to be consuming lots of, and then the healthy anti-inflammatory and healthful fats we we want to eat enough for us. And that's the other thing is I think there's this misconception that keto is just about loading lots of the fat up onto your plate. And really it's about tailoring it to your fat requirements. How much fat do you need? Can your liver cope with lots of saturated fat? Is it is it quite fatty after years of chronic carb consumption? Is your bile production a bit sluggish because you've, you know, not necessarily have the best functioning liver at the moment? So it's about looking at what your liver can take, how it can tolerate the fats you're, you're consuming, easing into it. I, I know traditionally people would look at a keto diet and see 70% fat, but I prefer to see 50% vegetables, 25% quality protein and 25% fat. Mm. And as a kind of a starting guide and see with activity and um, health status and liver function, you can start to sort of tailor it from there. Yeah. So that's why you call it, I guess, healthy keto. It is because, I mean, really, Jackie, you'll be highly aware of this. Keto is, ketosis is a metabolic state. You know, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a state our body goes into when we access the amazing gift that we have of being dual fuel burners. We have the ability to burn, um, or to break down carbohydrates to access glucose for fuel or burn fats to access ketones and use those for fuel. And this gives us an, a fantastic um, evolutionary advantage. It allows us to go days and days and days without eating if necessary. And during those conditions, the fasted conditions, our body is in this actual, it's in a repair, it's in a a state called autophagy where it's replenishing and repairing, it's um, expressing certain genes and it's in a a state of optimal conditions if you like, but it's not designed to be there for a very long period of time, but it's certainly, our body can certainly cope incredibly well for days without eating. Now the ideal is really to have an eating window 
And the science suggests this is about eight hours. And then outside that window, we're in a fasted state. So we have this fed state of eight hours where we're feeding our body, allowing it to grow. And we're using the amino acids from protein, the healthy fats for building blocks for hormones, supporting the immune system, supporting the cardiovascular system. And we're using veggies, you know, beautiful, colorful, fermented vegetables for our gut health and our bowel health. And during that bed state, we have certain changes in our blood sugars and our insulin levels. If we're eating lots of carbohydrates and sugars, um, simple or complex, depending on our insulin sensitivity, our blood sugars are going to go up and our insulin levels are going to go up. Mm-hmm. Now, if our insulin levels remain at a certain level, then it will block our fat burning. So if we're constantly in this fed state when we're awake, our blood sugars never really fully go down. Our insulin levels never really fully go down. They're just on this roller coaster. And we don't ever get to access that fantastic fasted state, the state when our glycogen levels have been used up, the state when our body starts to turn to itself to burn body fat and release ketones. And then these wonderful molecules that can cross the blood-brain barrier and push themselves into our neurons. And in a brain that's a little bit insulin resistant, so a brain where you know the, the neurons aren't able to access the glucose so well anymore, ketones will pass through and it'll just give you this mental clarity and improve focus and memory. And it can even awaken um, these neurons that are in a sort of hibernated hypometabolic state, which is why it's great for people with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and neurodegenerative conditions. Ketones can be used as a potential therapeutic approach to improve cognition and, and slow the rate of the, dege- the some of these degenerative conditions. Yeah. And my understanding is that at, at ty- those times when people are having trouble getting glucose into the brain, actually the brain is starving because it's crying out for nutrition, but it's not it getting it. The, it can't access those glucose molecules. So absolutely ideal it, to it, put in ketones. It's, uh, it's, it's an ideal way of, helping, as you say, to fuel the brain when it's in that state. And and an insulin-resistant brain has been noted in not just older individuals as a sort of preclinical state to Alzheimer's and dementia, but it's actually also been highlighted in polycystic ovarian syndrome. And insulin resistance is a major, major issue. It's What's interesting is we tend to monitor blood glucose levels, but not insulin levels. And hyperinsulinemia is a major problem for a great deal of individuals. And there's, they're just not necessarily aware of it. But when you have things like resistant weight and, um, sugar cravings, um, a need to eat regularly, emotional instability, fertility issues, it can cause, um, fertility issues and, um, brain fog, memory problems, body composition issues. You know, you have to start looking at what you're eating and could it be that your insulin levels are just continuously high from the constant overconsumption of carbs? Yeah, which is chances are that they are. Yeah, well, um, it's... Well, it's I mean, you can test them. You can have them tested, so... But not, on, not on the NHS. No. <laughs> but it, and unfortunately, it, it's the way we have... We're in a world of overconsumption because we we it's just accessible to us all the time we're actually designed for an environment of scarcity and yet we live in a world of abundance when it comes to food so we don't really get that opportunity to not eat 
Yeah. We do, but we don't because our our caveman genes are smelling all these wonderful foods and, and lighting us up like a Christmas tree. Our dopamine system is so overstimulated that it's very challenging for us to stand, stand back and say, hold on a minute, these foods have been manipulated to really drive my dopamine levels up. So they're highly addictive. I need to stop eating those, allow my metabolic hormones to stabilize, allow my gut microbiome to change, allow my insulin to resensitize. And then you can start to eat in a way that's freeing you up from a lot of the, um, the food addiction and cravings that people have when they're eating a standard diet of processed foods and highly sweetened foods with the perfect formula of fat, sugar, and salt, which are, which are really addictive for us. At this point, yeah. And, yeah. And, and the messaging that we're constantly receiving about eating five times a day, eat six times a day. And that's, that's almost criminal. Yeah. It's an old myth and it's one that needs busting because when, if you think about what happens when we eat, whatever we eat is going to have some kind of impact on our physiology. When we eat carbohydrates, whether that's simple sugars like glucose, fructose, it's, there's going to be a, a fairly, a fairly rapid increase in blood sugars. If we're having complex carbohydrates, like pastas and breads, there's still going to be an impact on our blood sugars. And with that increase in blood sugars, there is an increase in insulin. Protein has less of an effect. Fat has no effect. So depending on what we're eating is going to have an impact on our blood sugars and then a consequential impact on our insulin levels. Now, once we've eaten, let's say we eat at nine o'clock, we have a, a big bowl of porridge with bananas and honey. Once we've eaten, our blood sugars and insulin doesn't just come straight down again. It can take three, four hours for those to start to come down. And in the meantime, we're having our mid-morning oat bar or our breakfast snack because we're starting to get hungry again. Or be healthy and eat an apple or an orange or something. <laughs> yeah, something that's really going to spike your blood sugars. So up the blood sugars go again and up the insulin goes again. And then if we're still in this state of being fed. Our blood sugars are still high. Our insulin's still high. Then it comes to lunchtime and we're eating baguettes or paninis and, you know, whatever we're eating at lunchtime and up our blood sugars go again. So you can see they never really get to that point of being four or five hours following food as we enter into the fasted conditions, the fasted state. And it's within this state that our blood sugars start to lower and our insulin levels lower. Now, if we have this 14-hour window depending on, you know, if you're doing anything within that window, for example, if you're going exercising, then that window can shorten, but it, it takes approximately 14 hours for the glycogen levels to lower to the point where we can start accessing fat for fuel. Yeah. So if you were to stop eating at say six o'clock in the evening, and then you went through the night and you woke up the next morning at six, and then you had your glass of water and you went for a walk, come eight o'clock, your body is now turning to itself to use your body fat stores as fuel. But, and that's when you're in your true fasted state. But many individuals don't get that opportunity to get to that fasted state and use their own body fat for fuel because we're being told eat little and often throughout the day. And it's just preventing us from accessing this fasted state and this fat burning capacity that our body has. Yeah. Because so when I was young, um, we ate three times a day yeah. or twice a day. Quite often I didn't have breakfast, so it was just lunch and supper. I might have a 
you know, when I was a kid, might have had a couple of biscuits after school. Mm. But there wasn't this constant, constant eating. And I see it with my kids that they're just grazing all the time. Yes. Yeah. And the problem is when we're grazing on foods that don't satisfy our nutritional needs, it does nothing for our satiety. It actually stimulates our desire for more because of the effects on dopamine. So we have this really interesting connection between the gut and the brain via the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve ha- stimulates many different parts of the body, but when it comes to the gut, we have this bi-directional relationship. We have uh, the brain feeding information. There's a, a, a super highway going down towards the gut and there the the, the brain has a motor function. Now, going back is a sensory function. So, the gut relays information to the brain about the acidity of the stomach, about whether there's sugar present, amino acids present, fatty acids present. So, when we are eating, for example, something sweet, even if you were to numb your taste buds, your brain would still know that there is a sweet food in your stomach. So, things like pasta sauces and breads that are sweetened with sugar, your taste buds may or may not be able to taste that, but your gut will mm-hmm. send a signal to your brain and it will it will have the release in dopamine as a result of the sugar. So the, the gut is constantly sending information up to the brain about sugar presence, amino acids. So if you're getting adequate amino acids, then the brain will be told by the gut, there are plenty of amino acids here. And the brain will stop seeking more, more, more. If we're getting adequate fatty acids, so omega-3 fatty acids, acids, for example, then again, the, the vagus nerve will communicate with the brain and say, I have adequate amino acids, sorry, adequate amino, omega-3 fatty acids. And so it stimulates these satiety hormones that are produced as a result of the brain recognizing that it has what it needs for health. But if it's not getting what it needs, if you're constantly grazing on fast food and processed food, the brain isn't being told, I have everything I need, and you're constantly driven to want more, more, more. And actually, processed foods, the emulsifiers in processed food damage that connection. The neurons are damaged and blunted, so it it perpetuates that lack of satiety hormone even more. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. but And I see it as as, uh, we're being stimulated to go and search for those foods that have nutrients because we're eating um, foods that are lacking in nutrients or even yes. have anti-nutrients we're searching for those yes. proteins fatty acids the things that we need to build absolutely. our body and maintain our body absolutely so we're keep looking the brain is smart it's looking to make sure we survive and so it's it's getting all of this food into into the gut it's looking for what it needs the omega-3 fatty acids the amino acids it wants to be triggered to told to be told i'm good i have what i need and the satiety hormone is is triggered to tell you to stop eating when that's not happening and when dopamine has been stimulated because of the sugar levels and our our brains going oh this is rewarding and it motivates you to go and have more and more and more of that food that is sending our dopamine levels through the roof yeah so what what does a day look like for you in terms of eating So I start my day with a fat coffee. I drink decaf because I don't want the stimulation on my adrenals, mainly because I want to keep my adrenal glands as healthy as possible. The adrenal glands are very, very important when it comes to the sex hormones and, and, and hormonal balance. So 
the adrenal glands take over from the ovaries. As the ovaries start to retire with their estrogen production, the the adrenals take over. And if the adrenals are fatigued from constantly being called upon, if they're constantly stressed, then it can cause issues when it comes to perimenopause and menopause. Mm-hmm. So maintaining really good adrenal health is is really important when it comes to having a healthy lead up to menopause, peri and postmenopause. Yeah. So I, I don't take a lot of caffeine. I have decaf coffee and I eat raw chocolate because I find the theobromine is a, a slightly more gentle stimulation than um, caffeine and chocolate. So I'll start with the decaf coffee. Um, blended. Well, actually, let's go back a little bit. I'll, I'll start with water and some daylight because it's very important to get light into your eyes first thing in the morning. It's very important for your circadian rhythm. It's really important for your um, hormonal health. Getting that light in, getting some movement outdoors is the perfect way to, to wake your brain up, but to calm any overactivity in the amygdala. Yeah. So I start my day with some water, some fresh air, getting out, getting outdoors. Then about an hour to 90 minutes after, at least an hour to 90 minutes after I've been up and about, I'll have a fat coffee. So I have black coffee, Americano, blended up with collagen. I put mushroom powders in mine. It, it varies. I'll either put cordyceps or some lion's mane. And I put ghee. Sometimes ghee, sometimes butter, sometimes a combination of both because I love both of those fats. And that's my morning routine. And I'll have some herbal tea. Then lunch is the main meal. And I like a big lunch. I like to have plenty of sauerkraut. Um, yesterday I had some beautiful um, watercress salad, which I made a lovely avocado mayonnaise, lemon, um, balsamic vinegar dressing with, and I had eggs and some bacon and a keto toasted bread roll. So I always have plenty of fiber, colorful vegetables, um, quality protein and healthy fats. And I, I have a big plate of it. And then no snacking in the afternoon. I usually have some dark chocolate after lunch. So some hundred percent on bar or, um, some chocolate nuts or something to sort of finish off the meal to yeah. signal to my brain that's it now and also if you have your dessert or your treat if you want to call it straight after your lunch the fiber in the lunch really helps to keep the blood sugar spike down so you're better off keeping those things together having your fiber first which will really help to mitigate and against any blood sugar spikes and after lunch again outdoors get a walk 10-15 minutes is enough to really help with any blood sugar spikes. It just keeps the blood sugars nice and stable, optimizes insulin sensitivity. More herbal teas. I like sparkling water with ACV, apple cider vinegar in the afternoon. And then I always have something very light around 5.30, 6 o'clock. Berries, a bit of coconut yogurt, some sprinkling of some nuts, um, maybe some hazelnut and cacao butter. So it's very light. It would probably to some people look like a breakfast bowl, but that's what I have around five, six o'clock. And then I have nothing else um, in the evening. It doesn't matter if I'm exercising, walking, if I'm going cold water swimming the next day. I I never have food after six o'clock because I want to really optimize that fasted state. Yeah, I like that. I tend to finish eating by half seven, but I really, I think I've been thinking I need to bring it back a bit. It's just and working it, it's it around It's really family. interesting as you start tweaking. I started with the same Jackie years ago. I was, I was sort of saying, right, seven o'clock is my finish time. And as I brought it earlier, I just really noted I slept better. 
I go to bed earlier now and I sleep deeper. I always use magnesium as a way of helping to get great sleep. I'm a huge fan of supplementing magnesium because I feel, particularly as women, it's so supportive for us, for our our hormonal health, our mental health, our sleep, our bone health. So I I go to bed with my magnesium biglycinate supplements and I, I also take some L-theanine, which again, just really helps to calm the nervous system. And I find that the earlier I eat in the evening, the better sleep I have, the deeper sleep I have, and the more refreshed I feel when I wake up the next day. I have much more energy if I don't eat later in the day. And it's interesting, if I do have a day where I eat maybe at seven, half seven, I generally wake up a little hungrier the next day than I do if I eat earlier and I've had nothing because the ketones have definitely kicked in before. And so you know you're getting this this increase in ketones rather than waking up with um, the blood sugars. Excuse the squealing in the background. I have an eight-week-old Cocker Spaniel in the house at the moment. Oh. And he's, uh, he's still getting used to his surroundings. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. Um, so talk to us about magnesium because there's so many different types of magnesium. Mm. How should, if somebody's starting out and they're being told to take magnesium, how should they choose which one? That's a great question because it is so confusing for people, Jackie. You know, magnesium isn't just magnesium. There are so many different compounds and different compounds will target different areas. So we want to look at the bioavailability and where you want to target. So, for example, magnesium citrate is ideal for your gut health and your bowel movements. It will help to draw um, water into the small intestine, which will help ease of passage. So if you're constipated and you want to improve um, your bowel health, then magnesium citrates is great for targeting that area. If you already have loose bowels and you don't want it to target um, your bowels and your, your gut health, then don't choose magnesium citrate. Choose something like magnesium biglycinate or magnesium glycinate. Now, there are some magnesium compounds that can cross the blood-brain barrier and others that can't. Magnesium biglycinate can. So if you're looking to optimize sleep, insomnia, um, nervous tension, anxiety, optimizing progesterone and GABA production, then having something like magnesium biglycinate is ideal because it's going to cross the blood-brain barrier and it really helps to stimulate deep sleep. So there are other ones, for example, magnesium oxide. It's highly bio-unavailable. So we absorb possibly 10% of magnesium oxide. So a lot of the supplements you might find in some high street chemists, check the labels before you buy them because they might seem good value. But if you're looking at them from a bioavailability perspective, if you're only absorbing 10%, then it's not such great value. If you're getting some that, uh, a magnesium supplement that's going to where you want it to go, and it's actually doing the job of helping you sleep and reducing anxiety and releasing nervous tension, then it's it's great value because you're, you're getting what you want. So choosing that right compound is is important. <laughs> is, is there something to be said for having um, magnesium citrate and magnesium biglycinate together? Yes. We're not together. I don't know whether together is a good time you to can take it. Together. Yeah, I, I tend to take actually magnesium biglycinate and potassium magnesium citrate at bedtime. Um, I like the potassium because I don't eat lots and lots of green vegetables, but I have some. So I, I generally supplement, I have a potassium magnesium citrate as well as a biglycinate. I 
I think the biglycinate is really important if you... The thing with magnesium, Jackie, is that it, it becomes very low because A, our food source, our foods aren't such a great depleted. source of minerals anymore. So our soils are depleted. So we don't A, have the quality in our foods. Our absorption of these nutrients becomes compromised as we start to get older or our gut health's not so great. The acidity required to absorb iron and zinc and magnesium depletes. So as we start to age, we're, we're absorbing less. There's less in our food. And then we have the situation where if we have systemic inflammation, it depletes us of magnesium. If we have high blood sugars, it depletes us of magnesium. If we're eating a high carb, high sugar diet, it depletes us of magnesium. If we're stressed, it depletes us of magnesium. So we have this seesaw and we're constantly in this sort of deficit state. So it's really, for me, it's key that people see that, okay, I'm already in a deficit state. Let's get my levels up so that my body can start to really extract the benefits of magnesium or my energy, my nervous system, my hormone production, my neurotransmitters. And it's incredible. Firstly, on sleep, when people start taking these, um, these magnesium compounds that can get into the brain, sleep can be transformative. And as I'm sure you know, when you get good sleep, it's literally the foundation for so many things. We feel better. Our blood sugars are more stable. Our cortisol levels are more stable. Our emotional health is more stable. We just feel better and we make better choices when we've had a really good night's sleep. So it can be the domino that really sets you up for starting to make more positive changes in other areas of your life, like your diet when you've had a good night's sleep because you're not stimulating yourself with sugar and coffee and alcohol to get you through the day and then to relax you at night with the with the alcohol yeah great thank you so is there something that you'd like to some topic that you'd like to bring up that we haven't mentioned there are so many aren't there I mean, there are <laughs> I've got a whole list but we haven't got time so I'm really aware that you're short on time but I wondered if there's anything else that you maybe five minutes that you wanted to talk about or we could leave it for another time maybe I think it's it's with this journey, if you're just setting out on it, I think it's really important to be patient with yourself and to not compare what other people are doing because firstly, they might have been doing it for 10 years, 12 years. Their liver's had time to adapt and to change and to optimize. So just because one person is having ghee and butter in their coffee in the morning, it doesn't mean it would suit you. There are other ways of doing this. You know, you might want to put macadamia nut oil in your coffee, or you might just want to have some boiled eggs for breakfast. It's really about looking how this works for you. For me, I have my main meal at lunchtime, but for someone else, it might be that they want a family meal in the evening with their family and they want that bigger meal at six o'clock. So don't, don't be thinking that it's a very prescriptive way of life. Think of it as a, as, some, as a foundation. What am I trying to optimize and achieve? I'm trying to really optimize my metabolic hormones and I'm trying to really get the best out of my body in its fed state and, its, and in its fasted state. And how can I make that work with, with my routine and my, my everyday life? And we can increase that fasted state by things like exercise. And for me, I love cold water swimming. And that's another way of increasing metabolism and ramping up ketosis because your body is 
if we have time to speak about this, Jackie, I'm going to because it's such an well, interesting concept. I'd love to because we, you've got a, you're, you've got a, you've got a time limit, so we need to be careful. And I want to get how we can contact you and your top tips in because I've recently taken up cold water swimming as well. So go for it. I'm really interested. I'm a huge fan of cold water swimming. I started about 14 months ago and this is coming from someone who wasn't even doing cold water showers. I was like, oh, I don't like the idea of a cold water shower. But I started last, yep. just before December, end of November. It was freezing cold in the UK at the time. But my friend and I decided together that we were going to do this journey of cold water swimming. We have a wonderful lake in Clevedon. It's a Lido, it's seawater, and it's really cold in the winter. So we thought, let's do this. And we started off with just the idea of immersing ourselves in the cold, 60 seconds, maybe two minutes, and then out. And I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. It was middle of the winter. We had just our swimsuits on and I didn't like the idea of cold water at all. So that, that voice in your head that's telling you, why are you doing this? This is crazy. What on earth? This, why would you even want to do this is going in your brain. And then there's a part of you saying, just ignore that. You can do it. So overcoming that fear part of your brain, overcoming the lizard brain that's telling you that there's danger, that this is going to kill you, this is not a good idea, is one of the benefits I find of cold water swimming. Because it helps you to acknowledge that that voice is there, but quieten it. And it really helps to calibrate your, your fear system, which tends to become really oversensitized when we're bombarded with fear of COVID and bad news. And we're, we're constantly being signaled and triggered by all of this, these sensationalized headlines around us. So our fear system is on hyper alert all the time. So to be able to control that and quieten it and overcome it, it gives you a, a really empowered sense of, I have control over this. And so in, in terms of mental health, it's, it's really incredible. In terms of dopamine sensitivity, it's also incredible. You have this initial pain, this initial sharp pins and needles, a little bit of discomfort when you get into very, very cold water. But as humans, we tend to shy away from pain and seek pleasure. Mm -hmm. And actually, when we turn to pain, emotional pain and physical pain, it can be incredibly rewarding because after that pain is a pleasure. So we get this initial pain, but then we get this really pleasant, beautiful dopamine sensation, this really good feel-good sensation that comes following the physical pain of being in very, very cold water, which is part of the reason I think people go back and back, me included, time <laughs> and time again, because it does feel so good after you've done it. Now, in terms of our physiology, our body has three different types of fat. We have the white fat, the beige fat, and the brown fat. Now, the white fat is the kind of storage fat, if you like. It, it doesn't do anything except store fat. Yeah, that's the beige why I call fat it. is the sort of middle fat. And then the brown fat is, is metabolically very similar to muscle. It has a high metabolic rate. It has mitochondria, which gives it that brown appearance. And it really helps to burn calories. It's, it's a furnace. It increases our metabolic rate. So the more brown fat we have on our body, the higher our metabolic rate. So when we immerse ourselves in cold water, coming out after the cold water, you get this shiver. And the shiver stimulates a protein called succinate. And succinate helps to convert white fat to beige fat 
and beige fat to brown fat. So over time, you get this increased body composition of brown fat. Now, you don't look different. It's not like you're laying down more brown fat. You're using white fat and it's been converted into this metabolically active form of brown fat. So over time, you get this increased metabolic rate. So you're helping to increase that fasted state, if you like. You're helping to, whenever you have something that might essentially break your fast, your, your body is using up that glucose much more effectively than if you had a really slow metabolic rate where whenever you're eating something, your body's not really burning it and you're laying it down as fat. So this increased accumulation of brown fat is really good for our metabolic rate. And interestingly, ketones increase the metabolic rate of brown fat. Mm. Insulin lowers the metabolic rate of brown fat. So you have this really interesting relationship when insulin's low and ketones are high, it ramps up the brown fat metabolism. When insulin's high, it lowers your brown fat fat metabolism. But you can't Again, tap in you can't tap into your fat stores. Can you? you you can't. So it, it has has a this is again where ketones really come into play with increasing your metabolic rate so brown fat composition and muscle mass muscle mass again very important for women really important to maintain our lean muscle mass and muscle mass is very very important for using energy the brain and our muscles are the two biggest users of energy so we want to maintain for as long as we possibly can and build for as long as we possibly can lean muscle mass. And as sugar burners, we tend to lose our lean muscle mass. When we go on calorie restricted diets and crash diets, we will lose our lean muscle mass. We get smaller, but we get flabby. Then as you go back to your regular way of eating, you gain more weight and your metabolic rate is generally slowed if you've been on a calorie restricted diet or it's slowed because you've, lo you've lost your lean muscle mass. Yeah. So keeping your lean muscle mass, keeping your muscles stimulated and exercised, and optimizing your brown fat through and the metabolic rate of the brown fat through things like cold water exposure and ketone levels is going to keep you in that window of fasted state versus fed state. Yeah. Fed state. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I love it. But it also improves, improves the immune system. So you've got oh. a better immune system. There are so many benefits to cold water exposure. It, it creates a, something called hormesis, which is a mini stress on the body. Yeah. Exercise good, is good a stress. mini stress. Cold water is a mini stress. Exactly. Heat is a mini stress. Fasting is a mini stress. But when we do these little miniature stress situations on the body, it makes it stronger because we're creatures of adaption. We're constantly adapting to our environment to become stronger, healthier, fitter. And so... Cold water is just another form of allowing our body to adapt to that cold and get stronger and fitter. Now, I would say if you haven't done cold water swimming before, always go with a friend, make sure it's safe for you, that you know you, you know how you're going to react and, and you know tides if you're going in the water, take a, a tow float, make sure that you, you're following the guidelines for safety. But in terms of um, the health benefits, for me, understanding the physiological benefits and the mental health benefits, it's been life changing. Yeah. Where I go, it's it's an organized one. So we pay, um, but there's um, 
there's people beside the lake there's people on the lake at different points along yeah so if somebody got into trouble they'd come and help they'd tow you back whatever it needed Perfect. if you if you're in a bit too long and you've got too cold and you can't use your hands then they'll get your gloves <laughs> off or your socks off they'll even get you undressed and get you in your towel if you really can't manage it so no, I haven't got to that, but I have had the, uh, a few times when I've been in a bit too long when my hands are so cold, I can't yes. get my gloves and socks off. So I've often and got the, help get with the that. Shakes. Now, the shakes are good. Remember, try to not suppress the shaking because that succinate will help with that conversion to the brown fat. But I always take um, a hot water bottle yep. and I always take a hot drink. Now, the quickest way to cool and heat the body is by the hands, the feet and the face. Those areas of the body are the areas that are most receptive to heat, to cool. And you have these very special blood vessels in those areas that will allow the, heat, the transfer of cold or hot. So when you're, if you have been out in the cold and you've done your cold water swim, making sure your hands and your feet are warm. And you know, it's not so easy to warm your face, but those are the three key areas that you're going to heat up. You're going to get the most effectiveness for heating first. I will also say if you're doing cold water showers, don't forget that part of the hard work for the body is heating itself up again. So if you're having a cold shower, then you're immediately getting under the hot. You're doing the job for your body. Yeah. You want to allow your body to work a little bit to warm itself up because that's part of turning up the thermostat and getting that furnace stoked. So I feel it when I come out the, the water, you know, if it's cold, the air temperature is cold or it's windy, your body's working really hard to heat itself up. So if you're trying to mimic a little bit more of the natural environment, if you're having a cold shower, you might want to finish with a cold shower. If you're not ready for that, that's fine. Have a warm shower after. But if you're trying to increase your metabolic rate and you're trying to make your body work a bit harder, finishing with a cold shower is a great way of doing that. Yeah, I started with a very short, cold showers but I now I just get straight into a cold bath and I get straight out of a cold bath and I'm just yeah. wrapping the towel and I don't Perfect. have any warm showers so um how can people get in contact with you well I have a free Facebook group on um well firstly I have a uh, low carb and ketogenic store called So and Arrow it's an online store. It's a physical store in the in the UK. It's in Clevedon. And we specialize in low-carb foods. In We have a kitchen that make keto quiches and sausage rolls and scotch eggs and cakes and cookies and all sorts for your low-carb keto taste buds could desire. And this came out of a desire to find something that I could eat that just didn't exist. You know, I was going to all these health food shops and couldn't find anything that was grain-free or sugar-free or healthy fats, olive oils and avocados and butters. It was all made with sunflower oil and rapeseed oil and ingredients I did not want in my body. So we created Soanaro for that specific purpose of healthy, wholesome, gut health boosting, liver health boosting anti-inflammatory foods that can support your health journey so is that a physical it's a physical yeah. shop yeah yeah we have a physical shop just outside of bristol and then we have an online store for all across the uk um my facebook group is called healthy keto and low carb living yeah and then i have a an online health membership for women and that's called my health mastery you'll find details of that on the sew and arrow website but that's a a monthly membership where i do where there's two lives a month and 
it's it's to help educate. You know, it, it's very, very inexpensive. If you do the annual, it works out in an, under £20 a month. If you're paying monthly, it's twenty three ninety five, And it's a way of supporting women specifically on their health and hormonal health journey so that they can start to understand the implications of certain dietary ways of eating, of lifestyle, how they can use nutrients and supplements and ways to improve their hormonal health and to safeguard their their longevity and, and help to prevent chronic health because the biggest killer in women over the age of, of 50 is, is um, cardiovascular issues, is heart disease. So if we understand how we can protect ourselves from these chronic conditions and start putting those steps in place, then you know, it, it's empowering and it helps us feel like we're making the right decisions for our body rather than following some guidelines and we still see the levels of, of heart disease going through the roof. Yeah. So that's another passion of mine. And then I have my first book out, which is called Primal Living in a Modern World. And as I said, my second book, which is being published in 2023 by um, Penguin Ebury, is coming out at the beginning of 23, sort of spring to Excellent. next spring time. Yeah, I'll link. I'll put all the links in the show notes. So to finish off, yes. um, can we have three top tips from you? I know you went yes. into one before, but maybe you want to repeat it, or maybe you've got three other top tips. My top tips would be see food as something you love, as a an expression of joy and excitement and nature's gift to you. Don't see it just as fuel on your plate, but get excited about it. You know, we get so strict about the macros and things and, and, and what it should or shouldn't look like. Just enjoy food for what it is, wholesome, delicious. It's come from the earth or it's come from um, a wild grass-fed cow or deer and enjoy it for what it is. See food as medicine, mm. as a way of incorporating into you what you're eating makes you it's making your bones your skin your hair your nails it's making your your neurotransmitters it makes every single part of you so when you're eating think of that food as a form of you and see eating well as a form of self-respect don't see food as something that comes secondary to the house to the car to you know shoes and clothes see it for me, I see it as a fundamental, most important thing that I can do is eat well, because from there, everything else is built. Because, you know, our health, you, you can't buy good health. It comes through the choices we make on a day-to-day -day basis. So see food for what it is as the building blocks to your health. Then I would say just fall in love with getting back to nature, being outdoors, connecting, connecting with yourself connecting with nature, connecting with others. We've been through a, a really challenging period where we've been very disconnected from each other, from nature, from faces. You know, we've, we've gone through quite a, a challenging time mentally and physically. So, so just get back to that place where we're feeling connected to one another, to our feelings, to how we are with nature, with one another, with our food, and create that interconnectedness. And lastly, I would say, reflect, reflect on a daily basis on the things that you've done well. If you're on a journey, don't think about, oh, everyone else is doing this and I should have done that. Just go through the day and go, you know what? 
I made a great chase, choice this morning. I drank some water and I um, went for a walk first thing. Really celebrate the small things because those are the things that give you momentum to make the bigger changes. And the bigger changes, if you're constantly nitpicking about the stuff you didn't do quite right, it can be really demotivating. And before you know it, you're back to doing what you've been doing all along for many years. Celebrate the small stuff. See it as a journey. It's not to be done perfectly within the first month, two months, six months. Just enjoy the process of making small progressive changes, small daily habits. And before you know it, you turn around six months down the line, you think, wow, I feel different. I've made great changes and I'm still here. It's sustainable. And that's more important than anything. I love those. I love those because it's it really is about getting back, back to yourself, back yes. to nature, back to how we're meant to be in a way. Yes. And that was another thing when we were talking about cold water swimming is it's almost a medit. I don't know how you find it, but it's I find it very meditative because yes. even though there's a few of us in the lake, generally I'm on my own because my yeah. one of my friends swims very fast, and the other one is usually not even arrived by the time we're in. So we sort of all swimming at different times. So it's very interesting. And then there's the moorhens, the ducks, and they're float. They're swimming beside you, and you're there's. <sighs> trees hanging in all these things it's just it's really being at one with nature and then all the different weather things going on from bright sunshine to last week was all misty to having rainbows into nature doesn't it jackie it allows you to connect i feel it's really interesting because your body numbs almost yes you can't feel it disconnects you from that sort of feeling of needing to be in yourself and it 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 frees you up to sort of subconsciously connect with nature around you and it's a very interesting sensation when you you lose that feeling of your body and it feels like you become one with the water and everything around you it really is um it's it's brought me closer to nature and it's brought me closer to myself yeah i love that time of my week when i can do that Pauline, thank you for so much for coming on it's been fascinating i knew i was going to have a fantastic conversation with you because i know how deep your knowledge is and maybe in a few months time you'll come back and join us i will of course absolutely it's always a pleasure talking about these things and just raising awareness helping people see that this is a spectrum this lifestyle is a spectrum and you can just jump on right at the beginning and join these amazing communities of people who are empowering themselves with their own health journey and as a community one thing i want to say before we finish if that's okay jackie is when people are surrounded by those who are not on the same journey or not in the same place as them, it becomes really easy for us to conform to society, to conform to drinking and eating sugar and eating breads and pastas and all the things that you know we see being done on a regular basis by a great deal of people. We as humans have a very deep need to be part of a tribe and a community. Mm. It's a safeguarding for us because as hunter-gatherers, if we were ostracized by our tribe, we would have been very vulnerable. So we have this deep need to be a part of a tribe and to conform. So when we're surrounded by people who are saying, oh, come on, what's wrong? Just have some pasta or why don't you just have a biscuit? And we're in an office surrounding or we're in a, a friendship surrounding where people are doing all these things. Our surroundings the people we're surrounded by will entice us to conform because of that need to remain congruent with the tribe with the group Mm. so as you start this journey 
join communities, find people who are on that journey with you so that you can change that conformist kind of need with conventional ways of eating and the ways that you've always done things so that you can start to find your tribe, find the like-minded people, surround yourself with people who are of that same mindset as you, who want to do things a little bit differently. It makes the journey so much easier. Yeah. And you've got a Facebook group and I've got a Facebook group. So people can join those, start there, and then you'll soon find other Facebook groups to Absolutely. join. Absolutely. And even neighbours. There may be a friend, there may be someone that you know who's curious about this and you can say, hey, I'm starting out, let's do it together. There might be two or three of you. There might be, um, you know, just a, a family member. It might be your partner or your sister. Finding people like the you you swim with a group. I, I go with a friend always. I walk with certain people. I swim with certain people. I have a community of people around me who eat this way. When I didn't many, many years ago, it was more challenging. You know, you feel a bit like an alien. I'm like, you why do. am I the only one who eats this way? But finding friends who are curious or neighbors who are cu- curious. Yes, online communities are really great too. But if you can find someone who you can physically do this with as well yeah, it's really absolutely. powerful yeah very good thank you for that thank you for joining me it's been a real pleasure thank you for having me jackie it's been it's been really fun i've thoroughly enjoyed great thank you wow there's so much information in there i am sure you are going to come away with at least one nugget of information that you can implement in your daily lifestyle and there's a couple of things that I wanted to highlight. So one of them was about magnesium and how that can help with sleep. And that our in our current environment, we're often depleted in magnesium. And after a conversation with Pauline offline after this interview, I was mentioning to her the magnesium that I was taking. And I had started taking the, the Terra Nova uh, magnesium biglycinate that she recommended in the other podcast I listened to and she said take two and that's what I was doing but since then she said what she said to me is to up it to four and since then my sleep has been so much better so I'm really grateful to Pauline for for getting me onto that and for pointing out the difference between biglycinate and citrate so I definitely recommend going back and listening to that and maybe adjusting what you're taking. And the other thing I liked that she said is it's not a prescriptive way of life and it needs to fit into your life and work. And I definitely believe that because we're all different. We all have different lifestyles. We all live with different people and we have to work around different things. And I'm definitely of the mindset that you have to make it work for you. There is no we say this often, there is no one size fits all. So you have to work out how it works for you. And you can do that in many ways. Now, for some people that is avoiding dairy, for example, and they feel much better when they do. And for others, they feel hard done by if they have to avoid dairy. So you have to balance out how does that make you feel and really work that into your way of life. Another couple of things that I took away about the cold swimming and I implemented last weekend is the the shivering, that you need the shivering. So one, I stayed in slightly longer, so I got a little bit colder and not too long because you don't want to get hypothermia, but 
Um, I stayed in a little bit longer so that I did get those shakes when I got out. And normally what we would do is surround ourselves with hot water bottles on our stomach and our kidneys. Um, and what I did was I didn't put those round my stomach and my kidneys, but just use the hot water bottles for my feet and my hands. So I got some great tips out of Pauline's interview. And then she said about needing to find your tribe and that could be offline or online. So I'd highly recommend if you haven't done so already to come along and join the Fabulously Keto Facebook group. And you can find that by going to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Fabulously Keto and you'll find us or just search for us on in the search bar. So that's all for this week. To find the show notes, you can go to fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero seven five. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.